Welcome to episode five of Filmmakers Uncut, one of the most new podcasts for learning about people in the filmmaking industry, um, you know, the tips and tricks of how they became successful in the career. And the reason why we created this podcast is because we thought that there was a lot of stories um, and experiences that a lot of new filmmakers are going to, you know, gain a lot of insight and value from. And that's kind of why we started this podcast. We're on episode five and we have John Archbell here. John, how are you? Good guys. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. We're good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so why don't we just start ahead with a little bit of an intro, um, you know, talk about who you are, you know, a little bit about your experiences, what you do now, um, and we can go ahead and go from there. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I've been uh, a property master in uh, film and television in Toronto for the last 30 years now, I guess. And uh, I started as a photographer at Sheridan College and worked a little studio um, when I first got out of college um, and a buddy of mine called and asked if I'd like to work at the journal which was the predecessor to the CBC's national and I went and worked there for about three years and then got an offer to work on a movie of the week for CBC uh, so I left that position and went over and became a freelancer which uh, you guys know is sort of it's great when you're working and when you're not, the, the pay is terrible. So I'm in one of those spots right now, I'm, which is fine. I, I actually quite like being, I don't want to work 12 months out of the year. It's too, it's too um, taxing. So I've been off since just before Christmas. I'll probably go back to work in April on a, on a uh, show for, uh, for Amazon. I think it's going to be four and, uh, That'll take me through the summer, probably right into another show that I just finished. So, um, so that's sort of where I'm at. Yeah. That's awesome. That sounds very exciting. We kind of skipped through your history there. I feel like there's a lot of important details that people are going to find super useful. Like you said, you know, you started off as a photographer and then kind of worked your way up to the position you are at now. Um, something we love to do is kind of do a deep dive into sure. some of the struggles you had you know, just starting up, like, you know, what, what made you start photography? And then how did you build your first connection into the industry? You know, like, was there a story mm -hmm. behind that? Can you, can you give us a little bit more information? Well, you guys might have similar, um, similar scenarios. It's, it's sort of the people that you know, or make contact with, just as we're doing now, the people that might be watching, um, you know, they might be doing little independent films working together. My cousin used to work at a big photo studio called Templeton Photo Studio. And before I graduated from Sheridan's um, applied photography course, I had taken an art fundamentals course thinking I would be a graphic artist. I liked to draw when I was younger. Um, but I realized that I was really sort of fascinated with photography and how sort of instant results you got with it. And some of the you know, like shooting at night and uh, that sort of stuff was really cool. Like I thought, boy, it's really neat to work in a dark room and watch this stuff just sort of materialize out of nothing in the chemicals, you know, that sort of draw, drew me into photography. So the, the course that I took at Sheridan for Art Fundamentals was um, mm -hmm. uh, exposed me to photography because it was one of the aspects of the course, which was only a year. It was really just a primer to uh, get you interested in graphic arts, uh, photography, industrial design, all those sorts of things, life drawing. Um, so uh, I reapplied for the photography course, which is a two-year course. It's all studio work, architectural photography, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, they hooked, they had a model course at the time. I they probably still do at Sheridan. Um, so they hooked us up with models. We worked together. So they got headshots and we got experience. Um, and then my cousin offered me a job or through his art director at Templeton Studios, which was a, at the time was a massive photography studio in Scarborough, big, mm -hmm. huge warehouse, everything at the time. So this is back in 1988 when I graduated, everything at the time was shot size as. So if you were looking at a Canadian tire flyer or a catalog at the time, and you saw a full page ad for tires that shot was shot on eight and a half by 11 film. And one of my jobs when I worked there for the first two weeks was to load film in the dark, right? So 
you know, uh, uh, film holders were, you know, yay big. And you went into the dark and you loaded sheet film. And then you brought out your loaded film to the photographers who shot with strobes and tungsten. Um, they hired me because they were busy shooting a wallpaper book for uh, Color Your World. So as you walked around the studio, there were sets, you know, different sets were um, uh, were set up for different wallpaper backgrounds, right? And uh, And so I was helping move furniture, loading film. My cousin's specialty was tires for Canadian tires. So he put tires in his, in his workspace because all these different workspaces were just big cubes with, you know, light spilling into them. And as you walk down the studio, you could go to each photographer. I think they had 12 photographers at the time shooting full time with their own gear. And, uh, he would set up tires in his space and scrub them with like a wire. Brush, and then he had a spin that gave him sort of sheen because tires are pretty boring but you want him to have a bit of a sheen in the photos there was another pair of guys that were their specialty was um uh, clothing so they had all the models they were over in another area of the space everybody had their own sort of thing and i was uh at the time i was making uh 450 a week to work there wow so wow. five eight five <laughs> nine hour days or something like that I said that was pretty good at the time, you know, coming out of college. Yeah. And then yeah, for sure. a week and a half went by and they thought, okay, let's offer this guy a full-time job. So, because uh, it was a two-week contract. And when they offered me the job, it was three fifty a week because it came with benefits. And I was sort of like, mm, I don't know, that seemed like a cut and pay. And, and I turned it down, <laughs> which may or may not have been a mistake, a mistake. It was, you know, if you've worked in a studio a lot, it's, it's, it it'll test you because it's it's dark you know you, it's a beautiful sunny day today here where i live but if you're in the dark all day and you finally walk out at the end of the day it's sort of sort of a drag. jarring i didn't really want to be yeah. stuck doing that kind of stuff my cousin oh, I who, uh, who got me in he you know when they switched to digital and it wouldn't have been that much after i left because i know digital existed in when i was in college the first cameras were just coming out and uh they wanted everybody in that studio to switch to digital and the cost was prohibitive for him. He just he said it was like, I think it was 40 or 50,000 bucks for him to buy a large format camera with a phase one back and all that sort of stuff that oh he my to get to join that world. So he, he left and that was, I don't know, probably five to seven years later, he left that business and he went into carpentry. And as a funny aside, he went into the film business for a little while. Um, to work as a carpenter, but um, as soon as that opportunity ended, a buddy of mine said they were looking for some junior uh, junior position, someone to fill a junior position at the at the Journal, which was Barbara Fromm and uh, Peter Mansbridge at the time were the hosts, and uh, they also piggybacked on a show called Midday, which was all out of an office downtown Toronto, which they no longer have. They had, CBC had buildings all over the city, uh, and each one had its own function. The building was on Jarvis, and our building was on Carlton. Uh, and then years later, they consolidated all that down to Front Street. But I never was a full-time employee. It was a year-to-year -year contract. I think I was making 30000 bucks a year at the time. And... Uh, two weeks holidays, had a pager on my belt the whole time because if news broke, they wanted me to come into the office and get gear packed to send guys off to Afghanistan and, you know, wherever the news was happening. And um, and so I was there when the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, I got sent to Ottawa to work with uh, a crew interviewing Brian Mulroney at, uh, at his residence in Ottawa. Uh, you know, it wasn't all that exciting for me, but I moved up uh, and then I started in the crewing department where they producers would come to me and ask uh, myself and the fellow I worked for um, if we could get uh, who was available. There were, they had 10 crews at the time, uh, uh, sound and video. So uh, seven of those crews were stationed in Toronto, two were in um I think it was two in Vancouver and one out of Montreal. 
And so the guys would all vie for jobs, you know, like the sweetest jobs, because when they went away, they got the GM, you know, they got good money. Um, and then if you had to call them and say, hey, uh, we want you to do streeters at the corner of Young and Carlton, talking about, you know, the latest breaking news, streeters were, you know, uh, somebody going out with a microphone and a camera and a light and an umbrella stand or something and, and just interviewing people on the street. They didn't want to do that, right? They wanted to go like some beautiful, you know, location like Africa or something to shoot a documentary, which at the time documentaries are a, bit, a thing, you know, and they spent a lot of money on that sort of stuff. Um, now everything seems to be, you know, it's all watered down and, you know, all the news, if you go to Google, if you go to wherever you get your news from, it's all just aggregated into, you know, there's not as much uh, deep dive journalism going on. So anyway, I wasn't really a big news hound back then. I stayed there for about three years. Uh, I got a call from my brother-in-law who was working on, um, so again, you know, people that you know, that's why it's always important. The network and never piss anybody that you know off, calls you or recommends you to a show. So my brother-in-law called and he was working on Street Legal at the time, and uh, which was a big CBC show, but uh, I think they tried to reboot a couple of years ago, probably to no success, but I think it ran a season. But it was a big deal at the time. This was back in 1991, maybe. And so uh, I didn't get the job there, but they recommended me to another fellow who needed somebody to do uh, half a week in sets, helping moving furniture and stuff, and the other half in props. And so I went and did that for four months. When I quit my job at the journal, my boss thought I was nuts because I was leaving like a full-time gig. I only, mm -hmm. had four, I only had four months lined up on the next show. So he thought that was sort of foolish of me. But, you know, when you're young, you're like, yeah, you're going to try this. I had a young family at the time, so it was a bit of a, um, a, bit of a jump. But I, I made more in that four months than I would have in a full year at the journal because the hours are longer. There's unions that, you know, dictate your pay uh, over time, you know, start getting into time and a half, double time if you work stupid hours. They don't do that anymore because productions mm -hmm. are pretty, pretty concerned about overtime. So, you know, now a typical day is about 12 hours, 11 plus lunch. Long days. You, know, you don't get paid. Yeah, and you don't get paid for lunch. But, you know, some days, like I did a show, one of the first shows I keyed, I was the property master of, we worked 23 and a half hours on the last night of shooting because they had to get all the shots because all the camera gear had to go back in the morning and all the crews were moving on to another show. And I was on a flat rate and uh, everybody that was on an hourly rate made like three times as much money as I did. That yeah, they're probably excited. That, they were probably excited like complaining to hours. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I did. Uh, well, yeah. Yes and no. I mean, it, it really was a, a deterrent to productions like once you went into triple time i mean people were making oodles of money right but it was a yeah, deterrent sure. to production to say hey you know you shouldn't work us this many hours so now everything's a little more okay this is our day they plan their days very very strictly right so they say okay we're gonna only shoot eight pages a day or something right depends what kind of no, show no more kids show <laughs> no and they'll try and you know even at 11 after 11 hours somebody will come in and say okay guys you got to go home and we'll pick this up tomorrow kind of thing because it costs them too right. it's a lot more it's a lot more unionized now too right than it was before like it, fair work fair play. yeah it depends it's um commercials are non-union sort of but they also have uh the camera department's usually unionized they're an ia department or crew mm -hmm. uh then there's two main unions in Toronto. There's NABET 700, which is under CEP. And then there's IA, which is the big union. They do all the big features and the, you know, any of the action films that come to town and big television series and stuff. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Uh, a question I have on my end is I've watched Shit's Creek. It's a great mm -hmm. show. How did you end up getting into that as a property manager? Well, the producer that called me to do it, I'd worked with for many years prior to, and he's the first right. call they made. So, um, you know, Dan Levy and, uh, 
he's it was his show he you know he obviously got his father eugene to come and work on it and Catherine o'hara but it was dan's baby right and so dan finds a production company that can shoot it right and um just like if somebody calls you and says hey uh, i need you guys to shoot a you know a used car salesman's ad or something right you're gonna amass people well they start amassing people and one of the first people to call is a line producer or a producer because they need to they're tuned into who's in town who, who right. can crew the show so it's sort of a luck of the draw thing on who gets the show um because you know quite frankly i could have been busy when he called me and, he, and i would have said i don't i don't know what you're working on but i you know i'm busy for the next four months or something right? but um but as soon as you hear that you know it's going to have eugene Murphy in it or something i'm sure like, oh okay sure you know that sounds great um because i grew up watching him as a kid right i was just like in awe of their of sctv so um so what i'm trying to say is it's a bit of luck right um especially if, you know where i'm at now like uh i just got uh two calls yesterday for work and i had to turn them down because things are ramped and because it's so busy in town they're trying all these production managers and line producers are trying to line up their crew and they're having a hard time so I'm in Nabet. IA shows are trying to come over and borrow crew because they can't staff shows, right? Because they might have all these, like, you know, the Umbrella Academy and all those big series that are going on over in IA. They're all, they're all mm -hmm. fully crewed. And now somebody from LA says, okay, here in Canada, we're coming up to Toronto to make a $50 million series. Uh, let's get started in April. So they hire somebody to start setting things up, find a studio, you know, rent gear, all that stuff. Because even gears, you know, at a premium, right? Um, right. Then they start. Every, everyone's trying to restart. No again, right. Yeah. Right. Everyone's trying yeah. to restart at the same time, and people are just yeah, not able to find the right people. Yeah. yeah, and I think there was a void in product, right? Like you're watching TV now and you're going back. Now they're promoting like friends again. Or, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Like there's shows. There's a lack of good content and they just want to keep on producing and, you know, so yeah. people keep on tuning in and paying that monthly subscription. But it's a good thing for the production world. I mean, anyone who's who's doing entertainment in the, in the film mm -hmm. industry, I'm sure they're consistently busy because, you know, we're always going to want more movies and TV shows and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's a pretty safe business you. in a sense because it's uh, <laughs> you know it's recession proof almost. Right? Yeah, if you get lucky, like TV, you mentioned, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was about um, you know you you said you started off in school and you were able to land your first job um, and then kind of like segue into you know press and journalism and then over towards TV. But mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people nowadays are a little. A little you know wary of going through the school path because they're not a hundred percent sure if it's going to be as successful right mm -hmm. like there's so many people who just go right into freelancing um yeah. so what i wanted to ask you is that if like you were to restart your career all over you know like you haven't started your your first job yet doing photos mm -hmm. with your um your friends and family you know what what would you do if you were to start like in 2020 one <laughs> mm -hmm. right 2021 you're like it's a brand new year i want to start my photography career you know what would the steps that you think you would take now uh for photography i mean you just gotta shoot 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 and the more you do the better you get and i've told people this before i don't know if you need to take a course now i don't want to be the guy that says hey don't go to school but if you want to be a photographer put the shingle out in front of your house that says i'm a photographer or your online presence says I'm a photographer, right? If you're, I, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, I don't, I don't understand the new world of online presence, right? Like, right. Um, I have an online presence for photography, but I've chosen to keep my portraiture and my uh, commercial work separate from that. I, I'm, mm -hmm. Uh, as a hobby, I'm a bird photographer and I love doing that. And that's, and I joined Instagram to learn my birds. Right. And, uh, and now it's a real community that I've built up, um, doing that. And I love going online and seeing what other people have done. And then I feel like I've, I've got to add to it, but for, I, I've sort of 
I've turned down wedding photography now. I don't really want to do that anymore. That's a young man's game or a woman's game. <laughs> you know, there's there's a certain look that uh, I think people are after for for that, and I'm not. Uh, I'm just more of a pure shooter, like. 100%. I've never used a filter in my life. I don't know where, I don't even know how to apply them kind of thing. So, <laughs> you know, when they, when you see someone's grid on their Instagram page and it's all warm and fuzzy stuff or, you know, ethereal sort of colors that I don't, you know, that's not my look, but I can tell scrolling through my thing, whose photos, which without even looking at their name, I can tell people's stuff. But um, if you want to shoot, start shooting. Right. You know, you're, some of the gigs you're going to do, you're going to do for free, right? All of a sudden, somebody says, uh, hey, we're getting married. Uh, oh, let me do your engagement photos for you. You did a good job. Somebody else is going to call. It, kind of it's, it's, yeah. it takes a long time to sort of build up, you know, as, mm -hmm. as we all know, it takes a long time to build up a clientele where people mm -hmm. are going to call you or recommend you. or um, So it's just, uh, mm -hmm. I think if you want it, if you want to go further, with that, um, you know, that's where school, uh, what you guys are doing. And one day you have your eyes set on working for Disney. You might have to have something to back you up your, your process. So you might have to take the RTA course at, at Ryerson or, you know, uh, broadcasting or something, right. That, you know, gives you that extra, you know, you're still going to shoot your own stuff when you're young and you're going to, you know, put your reel together. But uh, if you want to take it to the next level, you're probably going to have to have something back in you. A hundred percent. I think, I think something to just kind of like stem off of what you said, you know, in terms of just shooting as much as possible, doing things for free is also in the meantime, like kind of finding out your niche, right? Like mm -hmm. you were talking about the first job at in, you were working with, you said it was your brother or? Uh, it was a cousin the at, wheels. at the studio. Yeah, yes. The cousin with the studio was like, cousin of mine, he, yeah. He built a, an entire niche around, you know, cars, mm -hmm. and car parts. And I think a part of the experience of like, you know, becoming a successful photographer is finding out what you niche in. Like mm -hmm. you can totally do what's trendy. Like if you're scrolling online, you want to try something and it's trendy, like do it for fun and then see yeah. what kind of comes from that. Um, I think that's kind of how me and Poya actually started too, right? Like we were just shooting for free a lot. So for anyone mm -hmm. who's just starting up right now, like, you know, we were in the same position four years ago, just shooting whatever, doing yep. commercials, doing like dance studios. And then what really made us big was finding out what we really enjoyed, which was yep. actually teaching other filmmakers and starting photographers, you know, how to get into the craft, a little bit more about their camera gear and stuff. So, you know, just to kind of add on what you said, like trying as much as possible, finding out what really sticks with you and being a little bit lucky in the process, right? Right, I 100% yeah. agree. Sorry. Yeah, I 100% agree with like Danny's point of finding a niche. I would say we're probably not that niched, to be honest, right now. Mm -hmm. Like we're in like commercials, weddings, like yep. music videos. Like we're in so many things um, that, you know, we're hiring on other people. Like this is a more than one man type of team um, to be able to handle this stuff mm -hmm. and brain power as well. So at the end of the day, you got to decide like how hard do you want to work and how yep. many industries do you want to be in? Because every industry you're getting into is something new, right? Yeah. In that sense. So I would definitely take a thought yeah. about that. Mm -hmm. um, and never say no, you know, like, that's when we last worked right. together, right? Was when uh, I got a call to shoot some video, but I'm not that comfortable shooting videos, right? I was I was close to saying, yeah, sure, I'll do it and I'll have to figure it all out. And then I thought, what if I land on my face? Like, <laughs> it doesn't yeah, do my as well career just any images. And I'd met you guys uh, a couple of years prior and I thought those guys seem to know what they're doing. So that's when we got together and worked together last. So. Um, it's also knowing, you know, what your limitations are, but as a, as a shooter, I mean, I would, I, any still project that somebody could send my way, I'm, I'd be happy to take on, but, uh, I'm still baffled a little bit by audio and, and I, I can't really edit anything together, you know, I can, but. Uh, yeah. Well, like you that's said, a, that's a real skill, right? Um, yeah. A good sure. editor can save mm -hmm. almost anything. Right? So. 
hundred percent. Right. Yeah. And I, so. and going back to like connections, I think me and John, we met at a wedding. Yeah. Right. And we didn't even know each other at the time we met at a yep. wedding. You're like, Hey, you do video. And I'm like, yep. Oh yeah. And then you're like, I'm into photography. And then we exchanged Instagrams and a year or two later, John yep. ended up, you know, connecting with us and working together. So the possibilities are always endless. You never know what yep. and who you're going to meet. Exactly. And that's, that's all it is, is, is networking, right? In any business. I mean, um, if you're in sales, you know, you're, you know, who to call. Uh, and over time, you know, more people that you can call in my business. I mean, the first show I did, I, I didn't know any suppliers in town. Um, I'm reading a script and going, where am I going to find that? You start making calls. Um, and you know, one thing leads to another over the years now, my phone's full of contacts now that I can say, Oh, you need a, you know, whatever. Uh, I know who to call, right? That's, that's what helps me um, succeed but it's it's a over over time process right you can't just sort of jump in and go you know you can't jump in and work like at the mm -hmm. highest level right at the beginning but yeah that's for sure um the same in any business right and everything leads to something else mm -hmm. so right i think um as a property manager I feel like it's super important. A lot of people don't know exactly what property managers do. So if you could explain to our audience a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. what your day in and day out um, consists yep. of, I think that'd be super valuable. Sure. So um, when I get hired, I'm, I'm ahead of the, I'm pre-production and throughout the shoot. Um, I get the scripts sent to me used to be hard copies now it's all digital and they, you know they're all watermarked so that you don't send them off to you guys and you know everybody wants to keep them secret so um you work through those scripts and and you know over time and experience what your uh responsibilities are in the script scripts are funny because when you read them the screen direction there's dialogue and there's screen direction the screen direction rarely alludes to costumes or set decoration. It doesn't say, you know, Danny and Poyo are sitting on a red couch. It just says, uh, scene three, interior studio, right? And then you guys start speaking. It doesn't really explain the set, but it always explains, almost always explains the props. So some props are, are, highlighted for you almost they're like you know uh wearing a headset uh and holding a microphone now we know you're you're maybe a sportscaster or something um it breaks them out and then it there could be some clues to what what else is required in the scene in dialogue it'll say uh that you know i alluded to uh holding a football or or let me throw you this ball is my dialogue. Well, you have to sort of assume, that, okay, somebody's carrying the ball. That goes on for feature films for 105 or 110 pages or whatever. Uh, an hour long um, drama is 60 pages and a half hour comedy is maybe 30 pages. You work through all those scripts, highlighting everything that you need. Even, even the things that aren't listed, like you know, a uh, fishing line so you can shut the door uh, so that, you know, uh, even though the door doesn't want to shut. Those are these things that, that you end up with in your kit, but you have to think of all the things that might come up while you're on set and those come with experience. I'm lucky now because most of the time I'm behind the scenes. I started on set when it was just myself and uh, an assistant and there was no on-set dresser. So, camera shoots this way okay we got that guy's angle we're going to turn around now and now the camera has to go here you guys got to move all that furniture and all that stuff to accommodate lights and camera so you're moving furniture and you're setting up the background for the camera and you're handing off the props just before they roll well over time now they realize okay that was maybe too much work for the property master and his assistant so they so they they made a position called the onset dresser. So now you've got a person that all they take care of is furniture and they make this shot look nice. 
and they've got a busy job sometimes sometimes they might get a break or but most of the time they can always find something to do they got to hang drapes they got to you know practical lights all that sort of stuff so it, it gets a little easier because now I've got, I've typically got a couple of assistants on set and a buyer that helps me purchase or rent all the stuff that I've broken down in the script. And so that working on those scripts, you know, you, you come up with a breakdown that you can submit to the ADs and say, okay, this is what I think we need for the scene or the show. The producers want to see it. Uh, then you start amassing things and showing things is this what you had in mind no oh i wanted a purple one instead okay fine they don't exist but we can paint it you know and then it just snowballs and you're busy all day trying to accommodate the show so it's scripted that the guy comes to the door with four pizzas okay fine we shoot that scene on monday on wednesday we actually shoot the interior where they're eating those pizzas now you got to find pizzas at seven in the morning. Where are you going to do that? Well, you got to order them the night before, keep them in a fridge. Where are you going to keep them in? You know, it's August and you don't have a fridge that's big enough to hold the pizzas. So now it's just, you don't realize it's going down. Uh, when you watch a show, if it's, if it's done well, it looks seamless and it looks like the actors just found the stuff on set and they, you know, just spoke, but the, the writers are the first people that, you know, deserve a pat on the back because, you know, without them, there's nothing. And then, you know, the actors just sort of bring it to life. Mm -hmm. And props is, you know, it's pretty far down in the, you know, thanks for a good job <laughs> category, right? It's like, if, if props is done well, nobody cares. But if it's done poorly, that's when everyone cares. <laughs> like, hey, where's the guy's thing? Or, you know, he left the house last month holding an umbrella. And then when we cut to the exterior, where's his umbrella? Oh, we lost it. Or, you know, I don't know where it is. Or I forgot. You know, they don't want to hear that, right? So. Yeah. There, there's something I, I was kind of interested in because I was uh, just kind of scrolling through social media. And I and there was this video of this uh, prop master, how he explained the different attributes of the props that were necessary to be successful on set. So for example, mm -hmm. there was like a grocery bag, like a paper grocery bag, but it was made out of foam because they didn't want like, you know, yeah. it picked up the sound and like fake ice, yeah. right? It was like jello or something like that. Can you talk a yeah. little bit, like are there any other like really interesting ups that like, you know, you, that you need to know to make it work on set? Like, can you give us some examples? Those are great examples. The sound guy hates, noises right all he wants <laughs> is pure audio of people talking because yes. you know there's there's uh foley artists that put it all back in later right so if i'm holding a cup and i set it down on a bar they want you to put foam on the bottom of the cup so when it gets set down or they say oh have you guys got some placemats that we can put that cup on later when the show's all edited they send it off the finished product to a foley artist who i have a buddy who does that's what he does they put those sounds back in. It sounds foolish, but if you set a cup down while you're talking, that's that screws up your audio, right? So um, it's not clean audio. And so uh, paper bags are the worst. Uh, they do. There's companies that make cloth bags that look like paper bags. I've got a couple in my kit. They're pretty cool. They look. I think they look bad, but. You know, there are some sound people that are like, yeah, no, it's fine. That's natural, you know, or actors that are really good at not making a noise while they're talking. So <laughs> they know to set their cup down when there's a break in their speaking, right? Those are, those are experienced actors that, you know, not that it's on them to do it. It's just some of them really understand their craft, right? Um, what was else was I thinking of for sound? Um, there's just some, you know, there's some wacky things that you have to do, like uh, that, you know, <laughs> that behind the scenes look ridiculous to people that aren't familiar with it, but that's just the way it's set up, right? Um, yeah, there's a lot of sound issues. Uh, wardrobe people have to put foam on high heel shoes just before a take because, you know, we're on a wide shot, two people walking down a hallway in a lawyer's office. 
and somebody's high heels are click, click, clicking over their dialogue. Well, they can't have that, right? So, right. So and I'm sure a lot of the times you're coming up with props like on the spot sometimes, right? Do you have any like past experiences you can remember where, you know, yeah. something happened and right on the spot you needed something and what did you do to, you know, fix that situation? There's, there's surprise props that come up, you know, somebody, they, they do the blocking and they, they work out their camera angles and the actors are feeling comfortable with their dialogue and then they go away to get fixed up while the camera sets up the lights come up. Um, and then they decide, oh, you know what would be good in this? If I had a, you know, a dozen helium balloons or something, right? You're like, I don't have any helium balloons. Get in the car, you know, <laughs> call call somebody on a walkie and say, hey, can you get over to the store and buy me one? That stuff comes up all the time. But there was a, I was on a series years ago and there was an actor who every morning had sort of a, let's just say he had a slow starts, right? As the day progressed, he was better about remembering his lines, but he used to turn to my assistant just as the clapperboard went in. He'd say, oh, you know what? I should have a takeout coffee in this scene. And he always wanted tea in it, right? Uh -huh. They'd be like, oh, okay, just a sec. He'd run, get the, you know, get the hot water going. He'd have to run to the craft truck, let's say, to get tea. And they'd wait for you. So they'd make adjustments on set, and he would start thinking about his lines, right? So this went on most mornings. So I said to my uh, assistant, I said, well, why don't you just make some tea? I think we both devised this. I said, make some tea, have it standing by every day in a thermos. So clapperboard goes in, he goes, oh, props, uh, I'd like a tea for this or a coffee for this scene, like a takeout coffee. Make some, you know, because some people aren't comfortable just standing there. They want something to do with their hands. Most people like that. Oh, yeah, no problem. Here's your coffee. Oh, thanks. And now it's like, you know, first take, so right off because he couldn't remember his lines, right? But <laughs> Oh, we my God. Out. We tried there. Anyway. Not hiring him again. <laughs> no, but he was, he, was, he was the star of the show, but. You know, right, right. I see. I see a lot. Here you come in as a new actor and say, "Oh, just a sec. I want to like, uh, you know, that's bad form, right? You just don't do that." So. Right. I noticed a lot in shows. Me and my girlfriend, like a lot of the time when they have coffee or any drink, it's always empty. Empty. Yeah, and and they like you notice it so like yeah. bluntly there, right? And, and I always wonder like why why don't they fill it. it? Well, there's a couple reasons. Uh, wardrobe's paranoid that you're going to spill coffee or tea on your, on a white right. suit or, you know, cause if you, if you dampen that, that suit they're wearing in take one and now you're like trying to clean it off for take three or something, right? It's bad. So whenever something comes up in the script and they say, Hey, uh, you know that scene where they're getting a fight and you hit a coffee cup, can that cup be empty? Well, then it just sort of became a thing. TV series like, uh, you know, fast-paced TV series like have you ever watched uh, Big Bang Theory? Well, yeah. And they always have takeout food, but everybody just sort of plays with it. They're in the cafeteria at the school at the at the university, and they just sort of pick, but then they talk. Oh yeah, and then they're, they're just about to eat, and then they just keep talking. Well, they don't really. It probably started innocently enough, like you know, they probably wanted to eat, but then if you're an actor. And every take, you're eating like a bite of a steak or something. You start getting really full, right? Or if you had to drink something you didn't like. So they eventually just stop eating and they don't have time to reset. So if you ate four spoonfuls of salad and we can see your salad in shot, on the next take, Props has to run in and put some more salad down to make it look like there's the same amount of salad off the top of the scene, right? There's a commercial on right now. I think it's for BMO. And the woman walks in to the kitchen to see her husband who's preparing a snack for the kids and uh, or himself. And she says, I got the promotion. And he goes, yeah, you did. And they, they high five. And he's, he's taking, you know, again, they want to have something to do with their hands. He's taking little slices of peppers out of a Tupperware and putting them on a plate, right? So they shot his angle probably four or five times he gets his lines right okay let's move on they turn around or whatever but they cut back sometimes into a, another take as opposed to the first take right and the peppers move around on his plate so if you ever if you're watching tv and you see that ad come on just watch those peppers that's what i do 
because and most people notice stuff that's wrong and uh, from a continuity standpoint but i watch that guy's peppers and they move around on the plate in between takes they cut to the guy at a desk and they cut back to them should be there should be continuity between those two shots but because the editors cut into you know a better line or a better uh, uh dialogue bit his peppers don't match because every time he did it he moved the peppers into a different spot on a plate right so that happens how long how long did it take for you to notice that you watched the cut once and you're like first really first time i saw it (laughs) there's a drug deal like if you catch it on tv shows or movies you like turn to your family like do you guys see that (laughs) rewind look at the pepper on Shit's creek there was a scene where they had pizza it was again it was like at 7 30 in the morning so i ordered all this pizza in the night before from a place that the cast liked in toronto and uh i ordered like 10 pepperoni pizzas because they only needed one but i had to keep replacing the same slice right so they open the box two people come in and grab those slices well you don't you don't know which who touched what so those two slices of pizza go in the garbage two more slices come in right but they don't quite fit and then as the scene goes on three hours later you're still shooting the same scene the pizza starts looking tired right <laughs> and the cast starts going well you know the pizza's not not really like what can you do you, you schedule 7 30 in the morning to shoot the first scene about the meat and takeout pizza so you know it works for the first hour and then after a while it starts getting you know but on that show, you worried, you worried, 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 because they started with a wide shot and then they went in for coverage. But when you watch the show, they could have done without a props department. It seemed to me like they, it's really about their close-ups, right? It's not right. props or secondary, but we had to worry about it. But everything that we fretted over, they just sort of cut out or they cut around or not that they cut around it. It's just that. That wasn't part of their game plan. They get the master to establish people's positions on set. And then when they go in for coverage, all that goes out the window. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the other struggles as a um, prop master on set? Like, I know, for example, some people might have like some last minute requests and you have to have the connections and the team to be able to go, you know, solve that problem, whatever it may be. Are there mm-hmm. any other problems that you have on set? Like, I couldn't imagine if somebody was like, I need a flying couch. Like, how do you go about, you know, getting a prop like that? Right. And at the same time with Shit's Creek, like you guys were in like a random town, mm-hmm. right? You guys were away from Toronto. I'm yeah. guessing like there's not much resources you have there where you can be like, hey, let's go grab this, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Shit's Creek was a funny thing because um, it was about a three month production right so i started maybe a month in advance uh working on the scripts in the last few seasons it was awesome because they would give us all 10 scripts on the first day of my job so you could read them all by the end of the day and be like wow i know exactly what i'm looking for that's pretty rare so it gave you a lead time to look for strange things that you've never had to buy or build before but uh the first two months was all studio so all 13 episodes, let's say, are all shot in the studio. So any exteriors where they, you know, they leave the hotel and they walk outside into the parking lot in front of the hotel, that was saved for six or eight weeks down the road, right? So we shot for two months and then we would, um, uh, and then we would uh, take two weeks off. So they called it a hiatus just to give people a break. And then we'd come back and we'd work for a full month on location. So in the morning, scene one of the first day back could have been episode six, scene 22. And then as soon as we got that scene done, we'd be going to episode three, scene three. So wardrobe was all over the map. Props were all over the map. We had everything that they had in those scenes that they might have walked out the door with or, you know, or the stuff that we didn't need outside. We didn't have to worry about until eight weeks down the road. So, but whenever we were on location, I sort of had to know in the back of my mind, at least where the nearest grocery store was. If somebody says, Hey, we should have, you know, this or, 
Uh, one night we were shooting late, uh, Eugene Levy and Chris, um, what's Chris's last name? He's the guy that played Roland. They were at a party in his backyard and they got high smoking pot. So we were stand, I was standing rolling joints like with fake pot, like as fast as we could. And we had another guy that I worked with, he was rolling into, and we were just sort of oh putting them aside because every take they needed a new one. And then the scene progressed to the point where they, they finished cooking the ribs on the barbecue and they sat down and they were like, they had the munchies and they just kept eating burp. They kept eating ribs. And I bought, I don't know, like a dozen packs of those pre-done ribs from President's Choice. And I had a little barbecue that I brought in from home that ran on a little propane cylinder that basically trashed the barbecue because I was offset cooking ribs. But Eugene was like, these ribs are great, John. And uh, every time we had a scene with ribs, I'd make sure I got the same flavor. But uh, it was like getting late and were my assistants like john we're gonna run out of ribs we keep going like this you know because every take we needed new ribs and put them new ribs in front of them so i'm running off the stove to the grocery store to buy more ribs we went through a lot of ribs that night. anyway my barbecue was like toast right in there because there was so much junk on it like uh, barbecue so sauce on it it was ruined but yeah you just have to be ready up you can't the idea is to never say no right like you the director turns and says, hey, John, can you, we had a, a scene where Catherine O'Hara wanted to, uh, well, it was written that she, she, she got a, she used, the story is that she used to be a uh, famous um, soap opera actress and, but she hadn't worked in years. And so she gets this gig in Schitt's Creek to be the spokesperson for a guy that has a winery and uh, he makes all his wines from fruit. So it's a fruit winery, like, you know, they make it from apples and pears. And so she has to, they do this big fancy shot of her walking along with a glass of wine through the vineyards. And she, you know, it was part of the commercial that they shot for it. And uh, she throws up because she's been drinking all afternoon. But at the production meeting, like, you know, back in April or whatever, they said, no, no, she's just going to sort of, you know, like sort of catch herself. And uh, I said, well, you know, does she have to do a spit take? Like, do we have to give her a mouthful of puke and then she spits it out? No, I don't think it'll be that bad. It'll just be a little thing. So, okay, fine. Because Eugene was sort of making the call on that. And then uh, we get there to shoot the scene, like, in June. And Catherine says, you know, it'd be great if she says, if I do, like, a huge projectile vomit. And if that yeah. was the case and decided, like, eight weeks ago then we would have had the special effects company come and they would have probably rigged a pipe with probably some compressed air and stuff right beside her face and they would have shot it from here and you wouldn't see the stuff coming out of her mouth and so she turned to me and said john do you think you could figure something out i was, I was sort of mad because i was like i asked this question back in april but i said yeah okay we'll see what we can do so i found this thing in my truck it was like a plunger and we hooked a tube to it and my assistant was holding the pipe like right beside her face and I was down below frame with this plunger and when she went the barf and you know it went firing out and I thought oh okay this sort of worked right and she was laughing and thanked us for doing it and then we finished the scene and next season I come back and the first thing she said to me was like sorry John they cut that scene out I didn't know they were going to she thought I was mad because they'd cut the scene. I was sort of pissed because I watched the show and I was like, oh, this is funny. Watch, she's going to throw up. But they cut the scene out. I guess CBC or somebody said, you know, it's too graphic or, you know, it wasn't funny. It was too, it wasn't subtle enough, right? So anyway, this that went away, but we tried. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was good fun. Mm. <clears throat> um, I think... We've reached about our time here. Yeah. If anyone has any questions right now, you can answer one or two questions on Instagram. If you guys aren't in Instagram, you can go to the bottom and ask any uh, questions you guys have to John. Um, it can be really about anything you guys want. Just put down there and we'll answer you guys as much as possible. Um, I really liked, you know, being able to talk to you, John, because I did watch Shit's Creek and, mm -hmm. um, the whole thing was just hilarious and I love how it's Canadian made as well. There's not many shows that 
you know, are super successful like that, that are, are Canadian. So um, yeah, I think that it was an honor to be I think that was a testament to Dan's uh, vision because it was all it is, you know, we had to check everything through him because he, you know, he was very particular about, you know, what things looked like and how things went down and the writing. And so, yeah, he's a smart guy. So. Right, right. Was was there a time on a set where um, you remember where you couldn't fulfill something that was like needed? Um, and how did you guys work around that? Uh, no, I don't think we ever had that. I, there were a few sort of tense moments where I said, hey, is this, you know, I, I'd go online and Google search umbrellas or something for Catherine's outfit. And she was, and uh, he said, yeah, that one, that one looks good. And then when I went back to get it, like to order it online, I was like, uh, can't get it for six weeks. Uh oh, what are we going to do? Anyway, I ordered it anyway. I thought, okay, I'll take my chances. And then like the next day they showed up at the office, but I was freaking out because we needed them in a week or something. I thought, oh, they're not going to show up. And I said, yes, we can get these. And, you know, so there's always that sort of panic. It's tricky now because of COVID too, right? You can't just pop, hop in the car and go get something, right? It's all, it's all online shopping. It's sort of weird. Right. It's a lot harder. Yeah. Makes sense. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. I think we're going to end it here. John, thank you for hopping on. We really appreciate your time in coming. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Next week, on Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're having Justin O.D. show on the show. If you guys are into editing and watch YouTube videos, you've definitely seen him. Um, he makes a lot of editing tutorials, so make sure to hop on there and give him a show. If you guys have any questions prehand, about 24 hours before on Instagram, we usually throw up, hey, what do you want to ask this person? Um, so make sure to be on there. You guys can ask any questions you want from Justin as well well so that will be really really fun on there we're excited for that episode uh aside from that thanks for hopping on danny do you have anything to say no i mean it's gonna be an exciting podcast you don't want to miss it so we'll see you guys next week amazing amazing awesome we'll see you guys there